Right before COVID, I had a chance to go to San Antonio for some, some work stuff. And I was only there for like 36 hours, but I'd never been. I don't go to Texas. I try to avoid it if I can. But I was there for uh, just a short period of time, and I had like a, a, an afternoon open. But where do you go if you have some time to kill in San Antonio? SeaWorld. Yes, the Animal World. <laughs> no, the Alamo, right? So I was thinking, yes, Alamo, which is right near SeaWorld, by the way. Um, I was thinking this will be fun. I'll go check out the Alamo. It'll be interesting. I have got all these expectations of what the Alamo is like. And I haven't seen the John Wayne movie, but that's what I had pictured in my head. It would just be a bunch of dusty cowboys walking around slowly. You know, it would just be out in the middle of this windswept plateau. There would be tumbleweeds. That's how I imagined the Alamo to be. That is not what the Alamo is like. How many of you have been there and visited? The Alamo is in a suburban shopping plaza. It is the weirdest thing. You have to go by the Starbucks and around the corner from the Baskin Robbins, that's where the Alamo is. And you're just like, this, is, this could be like in any suburban anywhere. And it's so hard to get in the spirit of the Alamo because you want to get a vision for where was Jim Bowie and what was he doing? What Davy Crockett and where were they? And how did this all go down? And you go there and you're like, oh, well, see, yeah, Davy Crockett, he took his last stand over there by the Jamba Juice, and Jim Bowie would have been over near the Golden Arches, and that's where he met his end, and it's just, you have to do so much work to get at the reality of what actually happened. Now, if that's not a metaphor for the, for the Bible, I don't know what it is, because we have centuries of assumption and, and culture and thinking and bad ideas that have just built themselves on Scripture, and it, it takes work to clear all that off and actually get at the reality, what really, truly the Bible is trying to communicate. It takes work. Some of you have experienced that. You've opened up your Bibles and you're like, I'm going to give this Bible thing a shot. I'm going to check it out. You open it up and you read two sentences. And you're like, nope, I don't get that at all. I'm just going to go back to Netflix because it's hard work to figure out like, what were these authors trying to communicate? In this series that we're in, we're calling it Journey, and sometimes churches will do like a big pause, and they'll be like, we're going to forget what we were doing, and we're just going to focus on Easter weekend. And I decided to go the opposite way of what most people do, which probably is ill-advised, but I decided let's just keep going. In fact, I planned for us in our, in our overview of the New Testament that we're calling Journey, I planned for us to end up um, on Easter weekend in the book of Ephesians, because I think this book has something to say for people that are reflecting on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do is kind of our normal routine. So this is your first time. This is what you're going to experience most weeks, this process of going through a book of the Bible and trying to get at what is really, truly being communicated. What is a picture of the real thing? What really happened? What's really going on behind all the assumptions and culture that need to be cleared away? So how the book of Ephesians works. It's a letter. It's a short letter. It would take you less than 20 minutes to read. It's shorter than watching a sitcom. It's a short little letter, but it is powerful. Here's how it works. This little letter that Paul the Apostle wrote, I'll tell you about him in a second. It's essentially two halves, and it divides almost perfectly into these, these two separate pieces. How many of you have been to a high school reunion? 
Been to a high school reunion? Yeah, some of you are like, I'm in high school. Well, 20 years from now, you're going to walk into that reunion and you are going to have some of your expectations upended. Some people, you're going to be like, what you ended up is exactly what I assumed you would end up looking like, being like, acting like. But there are some people who you thought, man, they're just going to end up being homeless, living on the streets. And then they walk in and they're wearing like a $5,000 suit and they're CEO of some company. And you're just like, what happened? What happened to you? But between senior year of high school and now, I mean, what changed? You would want to know that story. Well, Paul the Apostle, it's like he's at his high school reunion and people are like, Paul, uh, if I recall correctly, you hated Jesus. You hated anybody that had anything to do with Jesus. You wanted to eliminate Jesus' followers from the world. You were trying to stamp out this movement and now you're wandering around the known world and you're setting up Jesus' communities? What happened? Well, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 would be his explanation. He would say, this is what happened to me. This is what's going on. And it's in this section that you see verses that you may be familiar with, like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where he says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's what he's saying about himself. I didn't do anything. This was all the work of God. Or Ephesians 3.20, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that works in us. What? And Paul's saying, yeah, that power worked in me and it totally reshaped me. To him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So that's part one. So if part one is the emotional appeal, then part two is the real practical stuff. Part two is the stuff like, here's the mechanics, here's how it works. And this section is pretty interesting because there's about 40 imperatives. The stuff that we kind of associate with Christianity, like lists, rules, things like that, that would be, if you, you would be misreading it to think it's just rules, but that would be this section. Here's how to, here's what you should be doing, here's what you should be thinking. And it's all kinds of things. It's stuff about parenting, about being parented. Did you know that there's instructions for how chi children should behave toward their parents? Yeah, we don't have a word called childing, but we should. There should be a class about how to be a child. There totally should be. There's stuff about character and racism, or specifically anti-racism, life philosophy, time management, prayer, fighting, evil, critical thinking skills, like all kinds of stuff in this short little section. Part one is like listening to your favorite song. You know what I'm talking about? You're going down the road and the radio's on and maybe you're having a little bit, a little tension with you and your wife or maybe you're having a little bit of an argument. That song comes on, you're like, honey, we're gonna have to pause this. You turn the volume up because you gotta sing along because it's just your song. And it's just, it puts you in a good mood and you love it and it changes you. That's part one. Part two is like learning to play that song on guitar, learning how the notes work, learning the lyrics, learning the composition of it so that you can recreate so that you can gain a better uh, appreciation for the depth of the beauty of that song that's so important to you. So in this section, we find verses like, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So it's about the people hearing you. Or chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, meaning that there's an enemy that wants to take you down. And here's some advice for how to stand against those things, how to not give in to those things. It's good stuff. 
If you were stuck on a deserted island and you could only take one little tiny section of scripture, this would be a pretty good one to take because it's got it all. So what's, uh, what's going on in this whole book? What's the, what's the scope? A few of our members went to the Grand Canyon a couple weeks ago now. They're sitting right here. They made it, so they survived. Anybody here ever been to the Grand Canyon? I have not. I will not raise my hand. All right. Seriously, that's, that's very few people have been to the Grand Canyon. Well, this is your lucky day because you are going to get the exact experience without ever leaving your seat. I'm going to save you so much time and effort and energy and trouble, and you won't ever have to go anywhere. So they went to the Grand Canyon, Father, Son, Butch, and Ben, and uh, they stood at the edge of the rim of the Grand Canyon and defying all expert advice, they hiked from the top down to the bottom and then back to the top again, which is about 17 miles. Now, beautiful vistas, but Ben, let me ask you this. Is this just as good as having gone to the Grand Canyon? No. <laughs> no, of course this isn't as good. You don't get the same experience. You don't, you don't smell the sagebrush. You don't feel the, the wind. You don't see the signs that say, please do not hike from the top to the bottom, back to the top again. You don't see any of that. But they did it. They plowed through all the objections from people who were smarter, and they did it. Ben actually showed me some pictures that he got. You would think he would have taken a lot of pictures of this beautiful vista. He actually took a lot of pictures of his dad trying to recuperate from his walk back. <laughs> up to the top of the rim. There's a lot of this move on the pictures from Butch, like a lot of them. It's a surprising amount. You should make a whole album. Is that an official hiking thing like to do this? Yeah, that is. <laughs> 17 miles. 17 miles that they made. Now, I'm hearing about this trip. Ben and I were talking about this, and uh, there's something about the Grand Canyon that's probably hard to describe. It's probably hard to put into words, because you could say, hey, yeah, it's a massive hole in the ground, right? But it's more than that. It's more than its description. How do you describe something that is indescribable? How, how does one go about doing that? How do you do that? So the most compelling thing that Ben said when he was telling me about his trip to the Grand Canyon was this. The thing that made me open up my phone and start Googling flights to Arizona, this is what he said. He said, you could stop at any point on the hike and you could sit down and you could just look for a whole day and you would run out of daylight before you ran out of appreciation for what you're looking at. It's pretty poetic. He's single, ladies, so just say it. <laughs> I mean, amazing. So I'm looking at flights to Arizona. I want to go on this trip, not because he precisely described what it was like, but because he p painted this, this vision of it that was so compelling. So the only thing I have to do now is convince my wife to fly there with me and go on a 17-mile hike. So we'll see how that goes. It's not going to happen. Ephesians part 1 is Paul, chapters 1 through 3, is Paul attempting to describe the indescribable. He's trying to, to explain to an audience through the written word what the experience of having a connection to the creator of the universe is like. He's trying to do that, but there are no words. You're going to run out of words before you can adequately cast a vision for what it's like to have a connection to the creator of the universe. That's what Paul's saying. Let me give you an example of this. Those of you that like grammar, you'll like this. This here, you don't have to read it. I know it's too much text. They tell you, do not put this much text on the screen because people will tune out. That's, this whole thing from verse 3 all the way down to verse 14 down there is one sentence in the Greek, and there's zero punctuation. 
Paul was a smart guy. He knew what he was doing. He intentionally did this to help us understand. Reading this is supposed to feel like drinking from a fire hose of the experience of what it's like to have a connection with God. And so the language that he uses in here is so good. Blessed, chosen, blameless, adopted, redeemed, lavished with grace. Ephesians is full of vocabulary that any of us would want to have describe our lives. These are all words that if we could just sit down and think about our relationship to the creator of the universe, we would love for these words to describe our lives. We would love that. We would want that. We would be happy at the end of our life, looking back at our 80 or 90 years of existence, if these were the nouns and adjectives that could be used. And Paul casts a vision for what this relationship is like. He doesn't give us precise details, but he says, this is the experience, and it's encouraging. It makes you want to, to look up flights to Arizona. It makes you want to figure out what does it look like to walk with God like he was walking. In fact, this is really important as you, as you work through the first three chapters. Paul, Paul says, listen, you weren't plan B. It's not like God couldn't get his first choice and you were plan B. You know, it's not like he was throwing a party and all the cool people couldn't come. So he's like, I don't know, you want to come? This was before the foundation of the world. This was before you were born. This was the plan. And he talks about, it's not because you were perfect. We were far from perfect. We read during communion that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It's, we weren't part of the in crowd. There's a whole big section about what the Hebrew Hebrew people and they were the chosen people and now God was expanding the circle of who could be in. This is all because of who God is. Sometimes people will ask uh, my wife and I how we met each other. And I actually think what they're asking is, why did she pick you? <laughs> like, what was she thinking? What were you like? Was there something we don't know about you now that was different when you were a 19-year-old that she was like, yeah, he's the one? Um, and the basic answer is a friend of a friend. We, we knew the same person, and I thought she was cute. That's the basic answer, right? That's the boring answer. The real answer is a little bit more complex, and it does not reflect well on me. The day before we met... You know, I'm a poor college student, so the day before we met, I needed a haircut. I didn't know I was going to meet her. If I had known, I wouldn't have gone this route. But anyway, I needed a haircut, so I asked my buddy to give me a haircut. Not like a haircutting buddy, not like a kid who had ever cut hair before, a kid who owned a pair of clippers. And I'm like, I don't know. You could probably do it, right? How hard could it be? Well, when he said, oops, right in the, like, the first five minutes, I was like, oh, this could be bad news. And my hair just kept getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter until it was just gone. Like I looked like I had mange. And so that's, so it's not like Kareen met me and she's like, there is one sharp looking guy. You know, I can't pull off a mange look like some of you can. I can't, it's not for me. The second thing, the very first time Kareen saw me, and this is going to seem kind of goofy. There's a whole long explanation. We were at this, essentially a talent show. And I, I was in a band and I played bass in the band. Now, no, everybody wants to be the lead singer, right? He's good looking, he's charismatic, or the, the guitarist, the lead guitarist, because they're talented and they're cool, or the drummer, because they're just back, they're holding everything together. Nobody wants to be the bassist. The bassist is the least cool member in any band, and I can say that because I have been one. So I look like I have mange. I'm up on stage. You know, Patrick, were you cool? No, I wasn't cool. I was playing bass. It was awful. It was just... <laughs> 
there's no recordings of this, which is a, a really good thing. So this is Kareem's first impression of me. Like, he looks terrible. He's not cool. Well, Patrick, uh, maybe you had charm. Maybe you just, you know, had the right opening line. And, you know, it was just one of those beautiful romantic comedy moments where you just said the right thing and sparks fly. In fact, if anything, the worst part of our interaction was my opening line to her because it was just terrible and it didn't make any sense. And I didn't know what to say because when you see somebody that's cute and you lose all your, you know, faculties to think and speak and put words together. It just, none of it was good. So I wasn't, I wasn't good looking. I wasn't cool. And I wasn't charming. And you're really like, well, why did she pick you? I don't know. That's a really good question. You would have to ask her about that. But it had nothing to do with me. And that's Paul's whole point in chapters one through three. He's like, God did not pick you because of you. God picked you because of who he is. Because of the person that he is, because of the type of Grand Canyon-sized love that he has for humanity. That's why God picked you. That's his whole point. In fact, in Ephesians 3.8, he says, listen, I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. But this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. We were picked not because of who we are, but because of who God is. That's good news. That's really good news. Some of you that are like, ah, I kind of got my act together. I've got my life figured out. You're like, maybe that's less good news. But for most of us who are like, no, I fall short. I'm not a great person. I make mistakes. That is good news. And that's what Paul's trying to tell us. But what about this second part? What's he doing in chapters four through six? When I was uh, 19, actually the same year I met Corinne, I didn't put these two together, but when I was 19, I broke my arm, clean in two, both bones, just snapped right in half. I, it went from being straight to having a fold where it shouldn't have a fold, and uh, there's a story there too. But anyway, I grabbed it, and I was trying to hold it, and I had a, a friend drive me to the ER, and one of the things, I've never worked in healthcare, but one of the things, if I could give a little feedback to people who work in ERs, if you, if you could seem a little more excited about my injury, it would make me feel better because you walk into an ER and they, they just act like they've seen 15 broken arms the last hour, which they have, right? They just couldn't care less about your thing. There's a million other life-threatening things they got to deal with. But I walk with, in with my thing and the lady at the front desk is like, oh, fill this form out. And I'm like turning green, holding my arm. And I'm like, ma'am, I have three elbows. I'm only supposed to have two elbows. There's a, I can't, I'm right-handed. I can't, I can't do it. And I'm just getting angry and I'm getting frustrated. I want her to care as much as I care about this moment. I want her to be as work up as I am about this moment, and she wants me to fill out insurance information. Ha! Joke's on you. I'm 19 years old. I don't have insurance. Good luck with that. Just write none on the whole thing. Can you do that for me? I mean, literally, until 15 minutes ago, I thought I was invincible. I, I would tell the ER, like, can we take care of the paperwork after the crisis is passed? Can, can we deal with the rules after the rescue? See, I think Christians make the same mistake. I think Christians want to impose lifestyle expectations on people in crisis. We want to take the current controversy and we want to see where they stand on that before we help them. What do you believe about X? What is your position on Y? But the presenting problem is that that person needs to be rescued. They need to be set right. And guess what? When they're rescued, maybe they'll have a better opinion on whatever thing that you want to talk to them about. But as Christians, for some reason, we're like, well, I'll help you. But what do you think about this minor controversy? 
controversy that has gotten me really worked up. What if you rescued them and then you figured out what needed to happen? That's what God did with us. He didn't say, hey, what do you think about X, Y, Z? He said, no, I'll rescue you. Then we'll work out the details. Can you imagine a firefighter running into a burning building and finding someone there collapsed on the ground and trying to wake them up and say, hey, do you support additional taxes to support the fire service? No. You got to save them. And by the way, if a firefighter saves the person that needs to be saved, do you think that person might be more likely to support what the firefighters are doing? Yes. Do you think if a person gets themselves in a good, right relationship with God, maybe then the Spirit of God can work on them and change their heart? We start with the rescue, but Christians always get this so backward, and I'm so glad that God started with the rescue with us. Because chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians are not helpful unless they follow chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 1 through 3 establishes it wasn't you, it was all God. Now that you are saved, here are some things you are free to do. And he says some amazing things. I told you there's about 40 imperatives in this section. But he talks about like, hey, you, you are lying. Don't do that. Let's tell the truth. Let's live in truth. Or don't be angry. Be kind. Stop taking. Start giving. Don't look to seek revenge. Seek forgiveness. Don't, don't give in to sexual indulgence. Like let yourself be led by self-control. Don't be influenced through drunkenness. Be influenced through the Spirit. You know what he's saying? He's saying, basically, hey, you just burned your house down. Why don't you stop playing with matches? That's what he's saying. You just destroyed your life through those things, through anger, through sexual indulgence, through lies, through, through greed, through, through taking. Why don't you stop doing those things? Because those things destroyed your house. I'll rescue you, but let's stop doing those things that led you down the path. That's what he's saying. That's all he's saying. And people are like, oh, Christianity is just about rules. It's just about obligations. It's just a list of do's and don'ts. No, it's stop throwing yourself in the deep end of the pool until you learn how to swim. That's what Christianity is. It's saying stop trying to kill yourself with these things that I'm trying to rescue you from. Of course, he has something to say here in this section about family and work and character and all the things. All the things that we think about matter and do matter to Christianity. Some of you may be thinking, okay, all right, I, I'm, I'm intrigued, but listen, I am who I am. I've been this way for three, four, eight decades, and I'm not going to change now, really. I mean, how many of you have gone to the same diner, and every time you're like, I think I'm going to order something different on the menu, and then you get there, and you order the exact same thing. Like, I, I am who I am, right? I can't be changed at this point in life. I mean, I struggle with anger. That's just who I am. That's the way it's going to be. I'm not a patient person. That's just who I am. Can a person really, really change? And Paul would say, read the book of Ephesians. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Yes, you can be changed. Yes, you can be transformed. Absolutely. I mean, some of you are like, yeah, well, listen, I've tried self-help books. I listen to the podcasts. I, I've made resolutions. Eh, nothing really sticks. There's a reason why there are thousands of new self-help books that come out every year. Because we can't self-help our way out of our problem. We have to have someone qualified to rescue us and set us back on dry ground and send us off on the path that we've, we've been called to. Here's what, here's what we're saying. This is so cool. Ephesians chapter 1. This is back in the first chapter of Ephesians. This is all Paul's saying. Paul's not saying, I, he's not saying I want you to do anything. He's not saying I want you to change anything. He's just saying I want you to know something. <laughs> 
He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he says this, he illustrates this power by pointing us to the resurrection. He says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. This is the crazy thing that Paul's saying actually happened. This isn't an abstract idea. This isn't a philosophy. This is an historical event. This actually happened. He's saying that Jesus died, that his heart stopped beating, that blood stopped flowing through his body, that his brain was deprived of oxygen, that the light faded from his eyes, that he died. And that he was dead for days. And then the power of God breathed life back into him. And the lungs inflated with oxygen. And blood began flowing. And the brain synapses began firing again. And the eyes fluttered open. And Jesus sat up and walked out of the grave. An historical event. He's saying that power that did that. Do you think that that power can change your thing? Absolutely it can. Can that power make someone who's stuck in revenge mode and bring you to forgiveness? Absolutely it can. Can that power make someone who struggled with lies and deceit and make you somebody who is just full of the truth? Absolutely it can. That's the whole thing. If that power can do that, then what can't God do in our lives? If he can resurrect dead bodies, then he can resurrect dead character. I mean, that's easy. That's nothing. He could do that before breakfast. That's the point of Ephesians. If God can do that, he can fix whatever's broken or messed up in our lives. The resurrection is literally about getting your hopes up. Can God really? Yes! <laughs> but no, but really, I mean, I've been this way for 50 years. Can he really? Yes! But I don't, but my whole family is messed up. There's generations of problem and trauma. Can God? Yes! The resurrection is about getting your hopes up, about realizing that God can transform you. And let these ideas sink deep into your heart. Because it's possible that you can walk away from here a different person than the person that sat down in that seat. A different person, a different reality than the person who took that seat 45 minutes ago. A different human. That's amazing. That's the power of the resurrection.